0: And I first discovered this even before uh, getting into nursing when I was sick in Poland. And what happened is I went to a Chinese doctor and he took like a needle instead of like the glucose test and he mm. took a poke of my blood and he put it under a microscope to see the shape of my red blood cells. Mm. And he told me, uh, long story short, appendicitis. And I had I was on long-term antibiotics, which for some reason messed up my, uh, imu- not immune system, but my gut, which I had to treat naturally. So he literally looked at your... Uh, bio, uh, my your microbiology, and told you what's wrong with your body. What are you deficient in based on the characteristic of the rest? Oh, I
1: gotta go. Hey. I've been working, told them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro just leave me alone. Hey. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we
0: need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog, that's why I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day, Now my fan AKE. Hey everyone, welcome to the Cup of News episode with your hosts Peter and Matt here. Thank you everyone for taking time and tuning in on this amazing day. We're excited for this episode, as all of them we're gonna provide some value on these cup of news episodes. So if you find any value in these podcasts, like them learn something, gain some knowledge. Please share with your loved ones, your friends, family. This is what motivates us. This is what grows. We get downloads. The algorithm picks us up, and that's what motivates us ultimately to keep on producing this high-quality content. By the way, Spotify has ratings out now, so if you're a Spotify listener, go on there and give us the, the rating that you think we deserve. Five stars, by the way. And same thing for uh, Apple. If you're on Apple listening, hop on to Spotify really quick. Slam that five stars for us because that is going to help us out. A couple of news. Episode 81, I'm pumped. So for any announcements and anything related to us. Oh, one more thing. Spotify finally has videos out. So during, this, during the time of this episode, you already should have video podcasts. So if you're listening to Apple, you might want to jump onto Spotify because they actually could watch us at the same time as you're listening so for those that are spotify or apple listeners uh by the way a couple of news or a couple of nurses.com for show notes anything related to this episode announcements and anything in the future that we're releasing and if you're more more about the consciousness self-improvement we are frontline warriors we have blog posts on there that's going to motivate you and help you develop self-awareness we got the vlogs coming out Week by week, we just finished and wrapped up the Pacific Northwest. We're gonna have some Chicago ones coming out, and maybe one or two in Texas. So tune in for that. And of course, the big project we're working on, Pronto, we're gonna be revolutionizing and innovating the healthcare industry. We're putting a lot of time into it. The website and the app should be out soon. So once the landing pages are out for signups, we'll make some announcements there and go from there, guys. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing great, man. Another wonderful intro.
1: Thank you for that. On uh, this episode, we're going to talk about blood, different ty- types of blood, uh, kind of how we administer blood in a hospital and what's it actually made of because a lot of times we, we just associate blood with red blood cells, but there's more than that that constitutes our actual blood volume. So for our blood, there's actually three components to our blood. It's going to be the plasma, the red blood cells, and then the white blood cells and platelets. So if you break it down to two percentages, uh, your red blood cells account for about 44% of your blood. Then your plasma is about 55%, and your platelets and your white blood cells accounts for about 1%. And it's something that you know people aren't really aware of, and you don't really find out about it until like you go into some kind of medical field or nursing field or any kind of like health science you could say. Because when you go to a doctor's office, all they really do is draw your blood. They don't really tell you anything else about it. And then when your labs come in, they just give you your labs, and then you're basically out the door. Yeah.
0: But a lot of people think it's blue, right? From the interior because right. of their veins and structures.
1: Right, yeah. A lot of people think it's blue and then when it comes out it, it turns red. Um, that's another another way people see blood, but but it's just like it's a crazy thing that majority of people out there in society and even some of some of our listeners here don't know like these components to, to, to blood and then and like when they go to the hospital and we give them like a unit of blood or a plasma They don't even know because when you think of blood, you think of something red. So in a hospital, if you give you red blood cells, we give you a unit of blood. It's red. But then if you give you plasma, it's more of like a opaque color, right? And then say a playlist, yeah, right. It's all different colors. So so and they're all considered, you know, blood. So when we have like a for example, a patient that comes in and and he's like a Jehovah's Witness, they don't accept any kind of blood products usually. So we can't even give them platelets. We can't even give them any kind of uh, plasma. We can't give them blood, of course, because they don't they don't allow for that. So
0: it's always interesting to to look at, uh, at blood in a hospital, you could say. 100%, mm-hmm. brother. So the first we're going to start off with is with red blood cells. So the red blood cells make, they're called erythrocytes and they make up 44% of the blood, just like Pete said, and just envision them as being this round, Roundish cell with a nice little donut in the middle, and the size, the shape, it all matters to the overall health. And I first discovered this even before uh, getting into nursing when I was sick in Poland. And what happened is I went to a Chinese doctor, and he took like a needle instead of like the glucose test, and he Mm. took a poke of my blood and he put it under a microscope to see the shape of my red blood cells. Mm. And he told me, uh, long story short, appendicitis, and I had I was on long term antibiotics, which. For some reason, messed up my uh, immu- not immune system, but my gut, which I had to treat naturally. So he literally looked at your uh, bio, your microbiology, and told you what's wrong with your body. What are you deficient in, based on the characteristic of the red blood cell? Yeah, and even
1: in nursing school, in our nursing books, there was different types of red blood cell abnormalities, and it shows that some of them are concave, some of them are what's the other word concave and convex. Yeah, and you know that that's obviously like a mutation and like. A, an issue with, with your blood, which doesn't doesn't allow it to to function properly. The main function of blood is is has two main functions. One is to take oxygen from the lungs and distribute it throughout your body, and then the second function is to take carbon dioxide out of your organs and put it in the lungs. That way, you could exhale it and you could uh, breathe it out, so you could you know function normally, maintain the the pH balance. But looking at blood under a microscope. You know the if there's like a if it's not round if it's irregular looking then that's going to lead to usually some type of of anemia some kind of um, issues with your red blood cells and not only do they look at the the shape of the red blood cells they look at your the nutrients that you that you take in from your from your diet because red blood cells don't they don't just you know pop out of nowhere they're made by the bone marrow but they require certain things and the major things that they require is folate iron. Uh, vitamin B two, B three, and vitamin B twelve. So you need all those to have have efficient and appropriate looking uh, red blood cells. Because if you don't, you know, you can't perfuse your organs properly. And it's interesting. I actually found out found out about this while doing uh, some research over here. Is that your red blood cells actually lives one hundred twenty days? And you know, if your blood cells are diseased or irregular, they don't live that long, which leads to different types of anemias that you can experience, which causes you know, which can cause lower blood cell count as well as poor perfusion. It could impact your blood pressure and it could impact your, your heart health, your kidney health. It literally impacts your all your vital organs because blood flows through all of that.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting because sometimes in the hospital, we don't like transfusing unless it's less than seven, but mm-hmm. technically that's already a state of anemia. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if some of these patients we gave like a blood product, it would help them so much more because they would have... You know, like the uh, the C nineteen patients, you got hemoglobin that's like seven point eight, but they can't get their Sats up. Well, if we just dumped in a little bit more RBCs in there, that would help them out. Uh, and I and kind of I first kind of realized this when I was in um, working in LA with the whole ECMO team, where there was research that came out that said you should transfuse if your tenant below. Mm. And it helps with the mortality and the improvement of the ECMO machines. And that's why they do that. Yeah, I know, like with my experience working at, at the heart units,
1: we like to keep our patients like, you could say as fluid volume depleted as possible. So I, I can understand why they wouldn't want to give blood to someone that's like in like really bad or, you know, in certain type of heart failure, because well, every time you give a unit of blood, you're using a volume. And if you have a poor heart, let's say you give a unit of blood, you know, and that unit of blood accounts for like Two hundred fifty mL or three hundred mL or whatever you know it says on the on the bag, that could literally be enough to throw somebody into like pulmonary hypertension or you know fluid overload and it, it could do some damage. So that's why I understand that some units are kind of a little bit more picky and, and anal about it that they don't want transfuse if it's less than 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 seven. I understand that portion, but it makes a valid point. Like sometimes I look at patients, I'm like you know I feel like this patient could benefit from a you know blood even though their their is like eight. Or or whatever above seven, you're still like you know maybe this this might help them out. Are they like they're like a little on a hypotensive side. You know you've been holding your your, your beta blockers or, or whatever, and the fluid volume is is, is decent. You know sometimes they might might need that unit, but I guess sometimes physicians are just kind of more um, more reserved with that. I'm not sure because I'm not sure 100 why. Uh, I first I was thinking when I was doing this research was like maybe you know how if you give like let say for example steroids when you take steroids like for fitness. And you basically get exogenous testosterone from an outside source, you know. So you you take something as and that's a pill or an injection that boosts your t- t- testosterone. Your body is naturally going to not produce testosterone because it's getting from an outside source. Yeah. So I was kind of thinking like, could that happen? You know. But I feel like your blood, where your bone marrow wouldn't be making right. RBCs or blood products because mm-hmm. it already technically is artificially efficient. Right. But then I'm thinking it's RBCs last for 120 days, so that's what
0: three, four, six. Three months. Yeah, three months. Oh, so, no. More, 120 days? days? Yeah, yeah, Because 90 days. days is three months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying so, to do some yeah, quick yeah, yeah. math three here on the show. We got four months
1: there. Yeah, four, four months. months. Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe that, but that wouldn't make sense because they, you know, I've never heard, heard of anybody of, like, getting, like, bone marrow suppression from, like, a blood transfusion, you know? Yeah. So I'm kind of curious. I was always curious. Is it because, you know, maybe blood is just really hard to, to find and they kind of want to conserve it at, at all costs? That, that might make sense, too. Or maybe there's different ways that they could maybe stimulate the body like with erythropoietin stimulate, with the RBC. Yeah. Yeah, stimulate the rbc but people don't really get erythropoietin at the hospital really especially only, only the ckd patients yeah with esrd right and you, and stage renal disease for those that don't know the terms mm-hmm. yeah so only like a, like a select few get it so it's like i'm not sure that's actually another a good episode that you probably
0: should do on like a friday why do we transfuse if it's less than seven only Yeah, the Mm. benefits and all that. So since we're talking about anemia and that's an efficiency of RBCs, we're going to start with the first one, which is iron deficiency anemia. And we need iron, just like you mentioned, is one of the key minerals in order to produce uh, red blood cells in the bone marrow. So if we're deficient in that uh, mineral, we cannot produce um, any RBCs, or you you produce less RBCs and not enough. And this is why it's called iron deficiency anemia. Mm. Uh, Some causes of iron deficiency anemia is... Diet, which is low in iron, eat your meats, vegans. I'm joking. (laughs) Sudden blood loss, of course, with uh, with hospitalizations and an ongoing chronic blood loss. And this could be from heavy menstruations, uh, different maybe surgeries or some absorption issues and uh, weight loss surgeries.
1: Yeah, I think also, I didn't include it, but I was reading something online that even the vitamin D deficiency can lead to iron deficiency anemia just because like the sunlight plays a role and vitamin D plays plays a role in all this iron and, and vitamin... Like metabolism and stuff like that. Yeah. The the second, uh, you could say a, a real common anemia is sickle cell anemia. This impacts the usually the, the black population in in the U.S. and in, in the world. You see this more in black people than white people. It's an inherited disease where your your body produces irregularly shaped red blood cells, which then impacts the the hemoglobin, which which is built by the iron. So they have abnormal. Um, the hemoglobin that's in the red blood cells that carries oxygen, it's, it's abnormal. And so is the shape of the RBC. So it's they almost can- like
0: a moon shape mm-hmm. or like a crater. It's not circular. I'm sorry if I cut you off no, here, but good. it's like imagine like the super highway and there's like perfectly circular RBCs and blood products passing through and they're gliding against each other. But now you have these moon craters mm-hmm. that could like start clipping onto each other. And then when you're in the capillaries and, you know, fingertips and all these small little places, they get stuck. And as you learn in nursing school, these are the patients where, like, if they say pain is 10 out of 10, they're not kidding. They probably need some lauded.
1: Yeah, when some, someone's coming in for, like, a sickle cell exacerbation, yeah, definitely a lot morphine. And this is very common. A lot of the times it's asymptomatic, you could say, because not everyone that sickle cell is always in pain. It's more of, like, when they have a sickle cell exacerbation that they really get these these cladding in, like, their microvessels that, that really hurts. And people are, like, really, really... In severe amount of amount of pain, and what's also crazy is that it cuts down the life of the red blood cell by like a third. So instead of living 120 days, it lives for like 10 to 20 days, and then your bone marrow, is, you know, has to repro- reproduce the RBCs, but it's also reproducing these these, these sickle celled RBCs, which is you know it's a continuous disease, and it, and it sucks. I've had I think four or five patients in my nursing career that had sickle cell, and it mm-hmm. it's, it sucks. It's just you're giving them. I basically was treating them with morphine and just giving them blood. And that's basically until the body just kind of relaxes and normalizes where the normal RBC production
0: and circulation is higher than the the, the, the sickle cell um, RBCs. Yeah, and what's fascinating Shining about disease. what's fascinating about that is because your body identifies these RBCs as being irregular, they get broken down quicker, just like you mentioned, and this could lead to organ damage because your bilirubin is going up your lymphocytes are being over uh overstimulated because you're trying to break down and recycle these uh poor rbcs yeah yeah because like real quick just because when your body breaks down these rbcs like the spleen
1: or the liver it could usually reuse whatever it breaks down but just like with with anything like when you're recycling material even like you know in like the real life perspective like a recycle can you don't always you don't always reuse everything. Some of it still goes to the trash. And that just raises your pH and just
0: messes with, with everything else. Yes. The next anemia is normalytic anemia. So this means that your body is naturally producing RBCs, but just not enough. Their normal shape, normal size, your body just not producing enough. And this is usually related to a diseases such as a kidney disease, cancer, or rheumatoid arthritis that's causing this normal acidic anemia from to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm,
1: Yeah. The next one is hemolytic anemia. This is one of the rare ones, you could say. It's usually due to some some factor that causes you to break down RBCs. So a common situation where you might see hemolytic anemia, I've seen it quite a bit working with LVADs uh, because no matter... How healthy you are as an individual. When you have an LVAD in, you're going to have some kind of hemolysis uh, going on. It's not going to be real severe because when it does become severe, you know it usually results in a hospital visit. But every time you have a artificial mechanism or some kind of like machine in your in your body that's that's not meant to be in your body, you could say your RBCs are, are getting destroyed. Even with like ECMO, you're getting some some hemolysis with, with ECMO because your body your the blood in your body is coming out of your body, it's going through a machine and you're getting pu- pushed back. So just Having that artificial uh, uh, like machinery that automatically impacts your blood cells, and you're always going to get some kind of a destruction. Even with, with dialysis, you're going to get a little bit, not a whole lot, because dialysis is usually not enough to have you go into like hemolytic anemia where you need blood products, and you know you're on the verge of dying. But it does cause a, a, a little bit of this. But mainly, you see this with like alvads, um, and and yeah, it's it's when someone is in like a hemolysis state, it's, it's very intense. Um, because they're in a lot of pain. And it's not, with an LVAD, there's not a lot, a lot of things that, that we could do because the solution to getting rid of this hemolysis in an LVAD patient is to turn off the LVAD. But you can't turn off the LVAD because that's what's making his, the person's blood circulate the body. It's working as, as like a, a pump. Uh, for the heart which is very it's very intense when somebody goes they start peeing out blood their pee is brown and red then they start going to dic it's it's a it's a
0: fucking mess this is a a scary one but you don't you don't see it that much that's why it's like a end of life measure Mm -hmm. basically the last one which is also not as common as a Fanconi anemia and this is a rare inherited disorder that's basically your bone marrow is not able to produce blood components including red blood cells so this is more genetic it's uh in children and it starts with uh uh ch- this children is born with a serious uh, birth defect and it may develop into leukemia yeah it's unfortunate so, yeah like straight, straight from
1: birth there's some issue going on where you cannot appropriately produce these rbcs or reproduce or you're producing them in like an irregular manner and you can't develop properly because if you're not perfusing your organs how are you supposed to grow and that's a it's, a it's a very sad thing i think it's something that we recently found out about not not too long ago and there's a lot of research, research studies that's is being done on it, but not a lot you could do, unfortunately. Yeah. You know? yeah, especially if you have like a disease of, like right right from birth, like it sucks, or you have a disease when you're in in the womb, uh, because you're developing there. Like this, when you're growing as like an infant, as as a, as a child, you're going through so much growth and development in different areas that any kind of thing that throws throws you off, it's going to impact the developmental process. Like, it gets crazy. Like we, i like. We listened to a podcast one of these days. It was with, a, I don't know who the doctor was, but they were saying that when this is not about blood, but this is still kind of ties into like the development process of a child. I told you about it like maybe months ago, where we were listening to a podcast and it was a doctor on that said that there has, has been an increase in the amount of like jaw deformities in, in children. That's right. I'm and over- yeah, and they're associating that to the fact that um, we have been introducing baby foods to children. Uh, for such a long time, where it's causing this. Because back in the day, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like baby food where it's like soft and all they really have to do is swallow it. They had to do some kind of like more jaw action. And they're saying that this increased amount of of uh, baby food instead of like, you could say, raw or more organic foods leading to these jaw deformities.
0: Which makes sense mm-hmm. why there's a rise of orthodontics, people not having their teeth straight. Uh, and it makes sense. Use it or use it, just like mm-hmm. exercising the muscles. So when you're developing, you need to be eating something to stimulate your jaw muscles and your bone there in the mouth to form.
1: Right, yeah, just like imagine if like from the age of like four to age of like, you know, six, or I'm not sure when children eat baby food, I'm not that yeah, throw, throw them a bone at like yeah. age of five to make
0: sure they don't get braces. <laughs> yeah, see what
1: they do, you know? Imagine like sucking through a straw for a while, trying to develop your jaw, you know, your jaw is gonna get developed to suck in a
0: straw, not to necessarily chew on foods, right? So it's a little little fun fact for you A little y'all. fun fact. Yeah. Uh, different types of blood types that we're going to go over now. So there's eight total. Uh, let's start with A, 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 B, A, B, and O. So th- those are the main four. And then once you uh, get into the RH factor, which is either you're positive or negative, that totals into eight. So... Always, always very fascinating. I always had a hard time struggling understanding this in uh, nursing school. I think a lot of people do because it's
1: confusing. It's like, because a lot of these words sound the same and it's almost, it's just like blood and you associate blood with just being blood, right? Not these like A, A, B, all these letters and numbers now.
0: Especially when like they made us like write out a graph to see who's compatible, who's the universal donor recipient Mm -hmm. and all that but I never really understood why that is. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna explain this to you, and hopefully after this you don't have to write graphs for blood products, you'll just understand it. And if you're already a nurse that's listening, you probably don't have to even worry about this because the blood bank just hands you the damn Mm -hmm. blood. It's already cross-checked, you just scan the damn thing and you're good to go. But it's also a good refresher. So we have the antigen, which is all RBCs have them except for type O. So the antigen is literally like an immune—it's um, like an immune response that um, that context antibody that there's something irregular come and destroy it. So the antigen is hooked up to the actual red blood cell, and then we have the antibody, which is an antibody in the plasma. So it's circulating and and it's part of the immune system that kind of attaches to the antigen, stirs up a lot of mm-hmm. things. And fun fact that every blood type has an antibody except for type AB. Hmm. That was very fascinating. I have uh, never knew till doing some research on this episode. Yeah, so when you think, because it's
1: a little confusing. So like for all you nurses out there or medical professionals that are you know doing exams and stuff. So when you hear blood type A, B, AB, and O, so if that's usually referring to the antigen on, on the blood. An antibody is a thing that's circulating. So if you have type A, you have type A antigens. If you're blood type B, you have B antigens and so on and, and, and so forth. And yeah, it's it does get confusing, especially right off the beginning when you're trying to slowly learn about this. But once you kind of practice it more and more, you kind of uh, start to understand and realize that, that hey, this isn't, this isn't the hardest thing to memorize in the world. Uh, so regarding a blood type type A, uh, so it has only A antigens. And if you have blood type A, you're going to have B antibodies. So you're pro A and you could say you're against B, for example. So that's why when you get blood, you need to get, Type a blood or also a b because you you could only get the kind of blood associated with what antigens you have because think about it as like two magnets um when you get two negatives they push each other right but when you have a negative and a positive they stick together so for example let's say say A a is a minus so you you your a your blood type is a and you get a they don't stick together but if you're blood type A and you get B, well, guess what? B is a positive. So now you you have a negative, which is the A, and the B is a positive. And what happens when you have opposite charge? They stick together. Yeah. And they fight each other off, and they end up destroying themselves and breaking it down. And you know you, you can't live like that. You get into, into a, a reaction. Yeah. And it's uh, very detrimental. You start getting fevers. You start getting tachycardic you start turning red, your blood pressure might drop. It's a it's a it's a it's a whole it's a whole mess. Of course, not everybody has a really severe reaction to it. Some people might have like a small reaction where they just get a little bit red and usually physicians are are okay with you getting that. Maybe they'll just give you Benadryl and then that'll kind of treat it and alleviate it because sometimes we need to give you blood, but you know, you, you happen to be one of the lucky ones where you have a reaction to your own, bl- own blood type when you when you get it, just because there's like other micro things in there that people react to. That's why, why it happens, unfortunately. So somebody just give you the same blood, even though you have a little bit of reaction, we just give Benadryl and we'll kind of um, finish it off, off with that. So yeah, so regarding if your blood type is A, you could donate to A and AB and you can receive blood from O and you can receive blood from, from A. And then for blood type B, you have the B antigens. So you could donate to A person that has B blood or A B blood and you can receive blood from a patient that's O and B as well. Okay. So a lot of this is just kind of mixed and matching the opposites. So A B and O kind of get a little bit confusing. So blood type A B, it has both A and B antigens, but you don't have any antibodies at all. Because if you had A antibodies, guess what? It would attack the A portion of your blood. And if you would have B antibodies, it would attack your B
0: portion of your blood. And this is a good way to think about it because you have no antibodies in the plasma and plasma is already circulating throughout your body, you can receive almost anything. You're that universal recipient. Yep, the beauty of it. Yeah. It's kind of crazy how that works too. And blood type O, so actually that one has no antigens on its surface, uh, but it has both A and B plasma antibodies. I'm sorry, no antigens on the blood, so O, but on the plasma it has both A and B antibodies. So you can donate to anybody meaning you're the universal donor but you can only receive o because you have antigens to both a and b so that's the beauty of blood type o is you can give but you could only receive so little right and if you thought that was complex it goes a little bit of a step further because
1: now we also have rh factor and that's usually positive rh factor or negative rh factor and kind of the, the same thing goes with whatever you learn with the blood is that if your patient is is rh positive they can receive positive and negative blood, but if they are negative, they could only receive negative. So that's kind of another thing. So if you give, let's say you're, let say you're a, a um, negative, you can get a positive blood. You're gonna have no, another reaction, and you're going to um, do more harm than good. Crazy how much things go into. I think Rh Arch- yeah. is something that we found out. Um, just recently, you could say, like I think within like the last like 20, 30 years, because back in the day, people were matching blood, but then but then people were still having reactions. Like they would give, it was just A blood. So patient A, that's A blood would get A blood, but they didn't know about the Rh factor and they were still getting reactions. So then scientists were like, why are people still getting reactions? Like this blood matches, matches their blood. Why are they still, you know, getting these kind of, um, you could say, um, not withdrawals, but um, like, what do you say when you when you refuse something? Another word for that rejection. Rejection. So it's like, why is this this a patient rejecting this a blood? And then they kind of some more digging, more research, and they found out, oh hey, there's another thing. It's almost like another antigen, you could say, the Rh factor. A little bit confusing, but it's
0: a little bit simpler, just positive and negative. Damn Mm. science! I know it's crazy, dude. So the next thing we have white blood cells and platelets. So white blood cells account for only one percent of your blood. Uh, That's fascinating, but they're just circling around in the the three different fluids, Mm -hmm. and they're just monitoring and making sure that. Everything is going according to plan, Mm. but they have different responsibilities. And we're going to break down the five main types of uh, leukocytes, a.k.a. white blood cells. So the first ones are called neutrophils, which accounts for 62% of all white blood cells. Uh, They're responsible for fighting bacteria and fungi. And they only live for about six hours to a few days. Mm. Uh, Normally when you're, and I don't do this often because you're just so busy, you let the doctor kind of worry about it in a way. But if you're looking at a a cbc with a differential and your neutrophils are elevated they call them bands i think right if there's like a 10 percent band increase that's uh, a sign of a potential acute infection Mm -hmm. because usually those neutrophils don't last a while but if your immune cells around the body are saying hey there's an infection your body's going to start stimulating these neutrophils from freaking from formulating and start fighting off the bacteria, wherever it is. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. Because these these live anywhere from like six
1: hours to a few days. And it's crazy how this works. If you have like a few of them circulating, and then when there's like a perceived threat or an infection, your body produces more. And maybe you only need them just for a couple hours. And then, you know, they're alive for a couple hours and then they get recycled and reused. It's a crazy mechanism. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second um, most populous white blood cell is going to be your lymphocytes. It's about 30%. Um, of your leukocytes are lymphocytes. And there's two major different types of um, uh, lymphocytes, you could say, your B cells and your T cells. Uh, B cells, they're responsible for for like your antibody reactions and are also responsible for activating the, the whole T cell cascade. T cells, T cells are a little bit more complex. Uh, there's different types of T cells. Uh, for example, there's cytotoxic T cells, which those are like your major cells for, for destroying any kind of viral or, or cancerous infection, you could say. Um, then you have the helper T cells. What they do is they activate the rest of the T cell cascade. Uh, they also help with with activation of macrophages and also other B cells. Then we have regulatory T cells, which regulates the T cells, which means that once the infection is over, you don't want to still stay in that Heightened immune response and keep producing these, these white blood cells. So the helper T-cell or regulatory T-cells actually help suppress the inflammation and in immune system and help you kind of rev down and relax and let the body know that, hey, this is now, infection is now over. Then you have the memory T-cells. They they protect you against prior infections. They're the ones that store all this immune memory. That way, you know, if you get a cold and it happens to be the, the the same strain of cold as before, your body's going to know how to fight off already because it already has it somewhere in its, its library. And then your natural killer T cells, um, they're like your like they like it says natural killer cells. They're just there baby to kill de- cells, baby. Yep, they're just there just to destroy. If if the cell does not have a certain marker that's associated with you, it's going to to, to get destroyed. Sometimes it does lead to some casualties and stuff like that. But the, these are the the heavy hitters. These are the ones that are dropping the bombs because you know you have to fight this infection. And this is almost like your your baseline reaction to just let's. Let's whatever is infecting us. Let's just destroy it and hit it as hard as we can. I know some good cells might get destroyed, but that's sacrifice for for the better good. You know.
0: Yeah, it's wild. It's just so fascinating Mm -hmm. how beautiful our body is, immune system, and you know we're on the circulatory experience here with the blood. Uh, I feel like I feel like I'm literally taking an experience in the magic school bus right now, just learning about uh, learning about all this. And when you're talking about it, I'm just literally envisioning. Myself on the trip in the magic school bus, just seeing these blood blood cells and freaking white blood cells, T cells just circulating around and all that. <laughs> yeah, the magic school bus,
1: it made me like fall in love with science.
0: Yeah. Just because, like, you don't see this stuff, but yet it it
1: exists. And it was just like a really, really cool way to learn as, as a kid. You just watch the cartoon, and I always like action packed, there's always something going down and it was, it was really interesting. It probably taught me a lot
0: before nursing school. Especially if you're like a visual learner. Mm-hmm. So the next one are monocytes and they uh, compromise 5.5% of all leukocytes. And we're gonna think about these as the macrophages. These are the bigger uh, white blood cells from all of them and they literally swallow microorganisms. They remove dead cells. And this is why, uh, side note, this is why and this is something a little bit more new where they're saying that atherosclerosis is not necessarily from eating meats and saturated fats. Let's just say if you're eating a diet high in sugar, these macrophages are destroying the extra sugar because you're cleaning things up in a circulatory system but that's producing cytokines and it's causing scarring on the endothelial cells, which is causing this atherosclerosis plaque mm-hmm. to build up. Makes sense, because it's causing
1: inflammation and inf- inflammation is is, is immune modulated, you yes. can say. So it makes complete sense. So easy on those sugars.
0: Yeah. And then during inflammation, these cells actually boost immune responses by showing antigens on the surface of where to basically go. They're like the markers that get that. I'm trying to th- word this properly. But they, they release antigens so your body knows where to stimulate that immune mm. response. The muscles are cool because they, they play like two roles. They play a role in like de-
1: destroying the, the, um, like the infection. And they also play a role in like identifying where this infection is and, and who to fight <laughs> off. So it's, it's probably one of our like very um, adverse, not adverse, like one, some diverse. Has a lot of diverse functions yeah. for a uh, white blood cell.
0: The next one is the eosinophils, if I'm even pronouncing that right. It, uh, it's a 2% of all leukocytes, and they're responsible for fighting larger parasites. And they're part of the allergic uh, inflammatory response. For example, if you're sneezing and all that, they live up to 8 to 12 days. And the next one, because it's kind of related to the allergic response, is the basophils, which is just 0.5% of all leukocytes. And they released the histamine release during inflammation. Yeah, the histamine. When you have allergies, when you're sneezing a lot, when you have teary eyes, when you go,
1: go to the store and buy medication over the counter, you're usually buying antihistamines because histamine release is responsible for those teary eyes and those sneezing because that's not another way where your body gets rid of uh, the, the infection. When you sneeze, you know, you sneeze out the infection, you're kind of decreasing the viral load, you could say, of, of, of the body.
0: Yeah. You know? And like, just like, put, put this all into perspective, it's very fascinating how our immune system works. And it's truly magnific- magnificent. So if you think about it, you have a cut or an infection that takes place. Okay, you have some neutrophils that come in there, and they're fighting the war. But hey, they're just the babies of the immune system, they need some help. The lymphocytes come in, they really take care of business because they're the Navy SEALs, the T-cells. And then you have the macrophages who will kind of come in there. that could kind of clean up the mess, also swallow up some microorganisms. And then you have the basophils that come in that stimulate an inflammation response to help vasodilate, bring more nutrition into that area, and help stimulate everything. It's just it's full circle. It's yeah. beautiful.
1: When I was reading this over, I'm like, the immune system is super complex. So I, I could almost kind of understand why if you don't live a healthy lifestyle, because because I'm sure you guys have heard us preach it before, is that majority of your of your immune system is in your gut. So if you have a poor diet and you just have a poor lifestyle, like imagine look at all these different different parts and systems in your immune system, and imagine where these things could could go wrong. So if your your body is not in like optimal per, in shape or optimal performance. You know, bad things could could happen like you say if you have high blood sugar you know you start having these white blood cells attack your sugar and it cause inflammation they could lead to oxidative stress and all and all that stuff so it's like it's it's a very very complex system and that's why it's important for you to stay as healthy as you can all the time because these cells they don't have brains where they could they could think and say hey this is enough they're just going to keep doing their job over and over and over again, right? Like imagine like like digging a hole. If you keep digging a hole, you know, to like, let's just say put a foundation and if no one tells you to stop digging, you're gonna keep digging and you're gonna get water or, you know, or if you dig dig super deep, maybe some like volcanic plasma or something, I don't know. You gotta be careful, you know?
0: And and Same uh, way. Just to give a a little perspective to what you just mentioned about the whole autoimmune thing, this is why autoimmune disease can happen, right? Because you can identify yourself And it's the same way like bees, for example, that are getting uh, hurt by all the cell phones and all the radiation that they're experiencing and they can't properly do their function. Same thing with like the geese. If they're traveling and using uh, electromagnetic frequencies from the earth to know where their breathing grounds are, but now that's being disrupted because of whatever technology we have coming out. Mm -hmm. Think about it the same way where if you're eating shitty food, there's going to be a the genetic information that's telling you how to do your damn job. So if that signal gets disrupted, they're going to continue doing their job, but they're just going to start attacking each other. Mm-hmm. And they don't know that they're friends all along. They just got the wrong signals, wrong information, you know? Right.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's wild. So another thing that composes that 1% of, of blood that we mentioned is is platelets. So platelets range from anywhere from, uh, I'm pretty sure it's like one hundred fifty to 450,000. Usually when you look at like a lab, you see like, 150 to 450 usually we kind of don't use those big numbers because it's easier, easier to look at and uh, platelets are thrombocytes they're also made in your bone marrow and they're responsible for for a clotting for clotting blood making sure you don't bleed out so when you get a cut on your hand a scrape on your on your elbow um, platelets are responsible for stopping that that bleeding they played a major role but it's also sensitive it's a very sensitive thing because if you have too much platelets it's going to lead to over but you have too little platelets, going to lead to underclotting and it could be be a detrimental issue. We see a lot of people in a hospital that that have a lot of clotting issues, and even in a hospital, um, per protocol, we always give you know either heparin sub Q or we put them on on um, SCDs or we give them Lovenox or just other kind of anti platelet uh, things because we want that in a in a very standard range because when it's out of the range, things could go wrong very very easily and if we have, for example, like if you're more prone to clotting, then we would want you to have less platelet aggregation. That's why some people go on like antiplatelet medication at home. Because if you have like a poor heart or poor, poor kidneys and your blood is stagnating, like like the man mentioned with the WBCs, they only know one job. The white blood cells only know to fight off infection. Well, get so Platelets only know to stick together and 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 stop bleeding. And sometimes if you have low blood volume or you have some issues that lead to Increase in coagulation. Guess what? You're going to be more prone to having like a stroke or a, or a MI because you know they're going to pull together and clot, and they only have that one job, and they only know how to do that one thing is it's to clot.
0: Yes, and this is why you take medications such as aspirin or Plavix when you're getting a stentin because it just makes these platelets a lot more slip slip slippery, I would say, and they're not going to form these clots that you're just talking about. Mm, yeah, and then if someone has low platelets, we
1: call that thrombocytopenia. Usually, if something ends with pina, it means like less or, or lower. So that's why we kind of associate thrombocytopenia with lower platelets. And this is usually when you have like 10,000 to 20,000 uh, platelets circulating around you know, in your in your in your blood. Usually, you see it like 10 to 20. But what's crazy is that we had that one patient uh, a couple weeks ago that had the ito, ito, idiopathic thrombocytopenia, and her platelets were like like a two. Yeah, and that's crazy. And we ended up intubating that that that, that lady. And when we were intubating her uh, with the NP, when he was going down uh, to put the ET tube in, here he saw like little micro bleeds going on. And he was like, "Let's make sure I do this right, because if I you know happen to nick something, it's going to be a really big issue. Especially if you nick something, you know, going down the ET tube, you're gonna bleed into your lungs and you could you're gonna you're gonna die. You're just gonna choke on your own blood. So yeah. it was cool. Not that, I mean, it was interesting seeing him. Uh, go down with the ET tube, you know, because I had the little camera and you literally saw just like like red dots literally everywhere. And he's like, wow. oh, we got to watch out for that. Yeah. So just, you got to be careful. And we check your platelets every day. It's part of a standard routine, CBC. When you go to get your blood drawn at a doctor's office, it, when you get a CBC, the platelets count is part of the complete blood count.
0: Yeah. I was, I was taking care of a patient too, where uh, she was in sepsis and had a whole bunch of issues going on. But what was fascinating is she had IDP IDP as well, idiopathic. They don't know the source of why she has low platelets. But when uh, what I noticed is she was septic. They put her on like three, four, uh, three, four, two, three different uh, antibiotics. One of them was vanco. They kept switching things around because they didn't know what was happening. And her platelets dropped from then. Mm. So they think that it could have been sepsis multifactory with maybe antibiotics that causes from happening mm. uh, another fascinating things that i learned about plasma is uh, you know how and i learned this from the stick you in the shock trauma unit where you could pressure bag blood uh there she's like yeah we're fancy here we don't uh, put it in the pump we just pressure bag things mm. i'm like, okay uh but she's like don't do it to platelets and I'm like, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Cause I never pressure back platelets to begin with. Mm-hmm. But if you pressure back platelets, they're just gonna break down. Mm-hmm. And you're gonna they're they're so delicate that you wanna just hang them and free-flow them into the uh into the body. Yeah, I know that. That's yeah.
1: interesting. Yeah, dude. Look at that, look at that. Dude, travel nurse gets us so much, who would have known, you know? <laughs> Maybe one day if we would have known, we would have been like, okay, his plates are like at like a zero. We got a master trans plates. we gotta squeeze dump it in there. It's dump like, yeah, it's like
0: you can't. You gotta make it just nice and calm. And they're gonna look at you like are you stupid? <laughs> yeah. Nah, man, learn this in a shock trauma. You know, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> well, you're just a nurse. <laughs> Mother. Yeah, so on the flip Play side. That scenario. <laughs> right. So on, on the flip side, we have
1: thrombocythemia, which is the overproduction of, of platelets. And that's usually anywhere from like 500,000 to 1 million. And this can lead to overclouding because you have more platelets. So some you might have a higher chance of stroke, higher chance of MI higher chance of any kind of DIC going on, just because you're over overproducing these plates. So you're going to start clotting in places that you know you don't want to clot. And I haven't really experienced a patient that has uh, high platelets. It's usually the opposite, I feel like, for me. I'm not sure if you have any experience with high platelet
0: patients. They were high, but we didn't do anything specific to treat them or anything. Mm. Really really just Lovenox, man, or Heparin, right? That's yeah. all they really do for that. Yeah, with plates,
1: I feel like you have a little bit more wiggle room. Because sometimes you have a patient that has pellets of like, you know, eight, and they'll be like, okay, just, just be careful. We're not gonna give them pellets yet. Well, or hopefully they're going to, you know, come back up. We don't, we don't treat it super, super aggressively,
0: yeah. you know? So the next one is thrombocytosis, and this is another condition where uh, you get.
1: It's also, you have still elevated uh, pellets, but this is because your, your bone marrow is overproducing them. For some reason, your bone marrow is, is producing too much too much of these um, of these platelets. Usually associated with with cancer. When somebody has like uh, almost, you could say, idiopathically high levels of platelets, it's usually associated with 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 cancer or some kind of a a disease in a body that stimulates this this platelet production. I never heard about it before until this, this time.
0: Yeah, I, I looked yeah. at it because I didn't read that one too, well and I'm like, wait, what mm. the heck is this? Because cytosis kind of reminds me of. Like breakdown the of breakdown right? of something. And it completely confused me. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to scramble around and try mm. to figure this out. Mm. Yeah, it's very it's very complex. You know, like this, this is just blood. So for all of you
1: people that aren't medical professionals or don't work in a medical field, like we're just talking about blood. And this is just how complex one aspect of, of our career and of our job is. So imagine all the other things that we have to worry about, you know, like DKA and things like that.
0: And I think this is why nursing is also a badass profession, because we're not only dealing with the heart. Or the lung or the kidney specialist. We're the specialist of it all in a mm-hmm. way. We have to just know a little drop of knowledge in every single department. Mm-hmm. And and that that literally happens because you're the facilitator of your patient when the the kidney doctor comes in or the GI doctor comes in, like he's gonna be asking what that doctor thinks or what we he should what are his recommendations. Mm-hmm. And that's where the collaborative work comes in of, you know, who you are as a nurse. Yeah,
1: that's the beauty of 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 being a nurse. Especially I like you notice it a lot, I feel like in um, university hospitals or teaching hospitals, because usually in teaching hospitals, you have a bunch of different specialties there compared to like a more community one where you might just have like a cardiologist and a pulmonologist and just like overall regular doctor, maybe renal um, might stop by every, every so often. But with these university hospitals, it's a really good experience because you literally have psych comes in, neuro comes in, cardio comes in, and then maybe the surgeon comes in, then renal comes in, and then, you know, the the... Pulmonologist comes in and it's and they're just focused on their one system. And you, as a nurse, have to know everything about every system in a sense because the cardiologist is, is, is going to come to you and he's not going to just assess the patient and figure out things himself. He's going to ask you questions. So you got to know how what blood pressure was, what the heart rate was. Um, did they have any any kind of uh, tachycardias, any kind of arrhythmias overnight? Are electrolytes okay? And then you have the renal doctor come in and say. Hey, you know how, how has he peed at night? How are his electrolytes? What's his volume status? Do we need to replete anything? How's his crean? And then you have the the uh, pulmonologist come and say says okay, we're gonna try and extubate today. How has he been breathing? As you do a spontaneous breathing trial, and you're like, oh shit, you gotta facilitate all this. And you know, for example, a cardiologist might like might like the potassium in, in the fours. Let's just say you have you have a, you have a patient and potassium is 3.5. The college might come in and say, cool, let's give him 40 milliequivalents of potassium, IV, just to raise the potassium. And he's he's not going to really always look at the crayon. He just looks at his lights. And then you might be the one like, hey, um, hey doc, um, I know you want to keep the potassium at, at 4. He's at 3.5, but guess what? He's on dialysis, and he's scheduled for dialysis today. Um, if you give him 40 milliequivalents of potassium, you're probably going to skyrocket his potassium through the roof. Because like I said, he's not making urine. His crayon is... Five, so he's not going to be able to filter that potassium. He's like, oh, okay, okay thank you. Then we'll just leave it, leave it alone. Reach out to, to, to Reno. So it's like you're facilitating everything because these, in an ideal perfect hospital world, you would think that these physicians from the specialties would communicate with one another, yeah, sit down. some collaboration. Mm. So there's some collaboration, but it's not as much collaboration as you would ideally want. So a lot of times, Reno doesn't really know what the hell cardiology is doing. Cardiologist doesn't know what the hell Reno is doing. Reno doesn't know what the hell Neuro is doing. And you're the one kind of like making sure that everything is done appropriately without having one doc step on another doc's doc shoes because, like I said, they'll usually only pay attention to, to one system. And that, that's good. I like that because imagine if you had one doctor figuring out the whole human body. There's so much systems there. Like me and Matt are just talking about blood. You know, imagine the dog having to worry about blood, the heart, the kidneys, the lungs, and all of that. That's very, very overwhelming. And you doctors see a lot of patients, they would they would give a lot lower quality of care if, if each physician had to focus on the whole body compared to if if each physician has his own specialty. It's, it's a very good thing. It's almost like you're looking at a body as a machine, which which in most cases you should, but we kind of always forget the mental aspect
0: as well. Yeah, and, and love the patient who mm. they are there. The last component of blood is plasma, which makes up 55% of your total volume, and it's mostly water-based, and it contains all the nutrients for our body, such as proteins, glucose, clotting factors, electrolytes, hormones, carbon dioxide, oxygen, everything is in this plasma, which is literally carrying nutrition and hormones to the body that's in charge of metabolism. And it's responsible for different organs of you know getting the right stuff there. Yeah, I feel like uh, plasma
1: is like the the nurses of, of the blood, yes. if you think about it, because it's responsible for so many different things. Um, but you know, but doesn't have full say over everything. You know, what I'm saying it just you're just you're just there making sure everyone's you know, every, every every organ satisfied. The pH is good. All the all this is good. And then you know, your your, your blood is making sure you're oxygenated properly, while the plasma
0: is kind of just like there, just to make sure everything's chilling. Yeah, and plasma is also usually with blood donation it's very simple, but plasma is the more complicated one when it comes to donating mm-hmm. it. So one thing that I'm looking here is that plasma is in charge of receiving uh, detoxified material waste products and actually excreting them Mm -hmm. so when you're getting your blood donated or plasma specifically does it run through this machine that cleans it out nice and clean before um, you have to donate it and i'm sure that that's Mm -hmm. the process which is just amazing i
1: haven't given plasma recently but if i remember correctly last time i gave plasma like you know how you get the bag of rbc of blood it just says you know a positive, and this and this is what's in here, the blood volume. And when you give plasma, there's different ingredients in there, like almost like TPN. Like when you see TPN, you see like this much potassium, so much magnesium, this so much lipids. Same with, with plasma, you're going to have basically an X amount of each ingredient because there's so much that goes into in, into the plasma. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So one of the main things that it, it's in charge of plasma is the coagulation. So it's important to think about this, such as fibrinogen, thrombin, the factor X, Um, Anything that's part of the clotting process that makes you stop your bleed is plasma. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also immunity. So blood contains disease-fighting proteins such as antibodies, immunoglobulins, and it plays a crucial role in identifying and neutralizing the pathogens. Um, So I think your white blood cells also is traveling in this way a fluid volume of plasma
1: yeah yeah so you have yeah it's literally like a like a soup yes soup yeah a real cool thing uh about plasma also is that it houses albumin which is a protein that maintains um blood volume sometimes we give albumin let's just say for example you have a patient and and um they're hypotensive little tachycardic so you're thinking that their volume depleted they don't have enough blood volume so um you kind of have to give them some kind of a volume. But let's say, it's, I'll say they're at heart failure, so you want to really give them fluids, because that's just going to make their heart strain and work harder. And you also notice that this person is very fluid overloaded. So their there's tissues are fluid overloaded, but their but the volume in their in their blood is depleted. It's a pretty it's a pretty common thing in heart failure where there's enough fluid in your body, but it's just not in your in your veins. It's are in your in your tissues. So one thing that we could give in a hospital is albumin, which actually takes the fluid out of your tissues and outside your vessels and brings it in. So it's almost like you're giving somebody fluids, but you're not giving them a, a straight bag of 500 mLs of saline or, or a liter. You're taking the extra fluid that, that your body is sitting in and bringing it into into the vessels. Like when we mentioned edema, when somebody has edema, it basically means that they have fluid in, in their tissues because maybe they have poor renal function or poor heart function. So the the blood volume or the, the fluid volume escapes from the vessels and goes into your tissues because it becomes more porous because of what you have going on. Yeah. And Albumin allow, does the opposite, where it takes that fluid out of your tissues and brings it into your vessels, almost like naturally raising your fluid volume without giving like artificial fluid.
0: Yeah, I had that cool. one time. remember I told the NP about it, like, hey, do some albumin, and it worked really well for mm-hmm. them. And this is why it's also very important to feed your damn patient. This is why we put Dubhofs and in, NG tubes in, and start them on um, tube feeds is because you need protein to uh, stimulate your whole body, first Mm. of all, for metabolism functions, but also for the production of albumin and these proteins so you can maintain this osmotic pressure and not be leaking out. Mm. Uh, I feel like here in this hospital, in Austin especially, we don't look at that albumin. It's always low, but it can make such a damn difference, especially when the ventilators is causing edema to happen because of the gas exchange. Why don't we make sure that level is elevated? Yeah, I feel like I like giving albumin, to be honest. I don't know
1: it's i mean so it I works know what, yeah it does work it, it does work um yeah in heart for the patient we always give albumin we never give fluids we always try to give albumin first but of course sometimes people are, are so sick where albumin just doesn't doesn't do enough i mean you gotta give them fluids but that's a that's a really hard thing to do with with, with heart failure to give fluid because literally like 100 uh 500 ml of fluid can literally throw these people into into like Cardiogenic shock. It's it's crazy to like see how that that happens, or to like, throw them into like pulmonary edema. And it's wild. Another thing that plasma does is it maintains your pH balance, as well as it's also the major transporter uh, in your in in your blood. So when your wet blood cells have got to get somewhere, they travel via plasma. Plasma is like the like the highway, you could say. It has all your electrolytes, um, like Matt said, it has all the nutrients, the coagulation things, and that's the main vehicle of of these, um, you could say micronutrients or these factors are in your blood to um, to travel to their desired location. It's also there for temperature regulation as well. Uh, fluid shifts cause heat gain and heat loss. So, plasma also helps kind of balance that out as well. So, yes. very important components of your blood. It's crazy.
0: And this wouldn't be a blood podcast episode if we were to be talking about blood administration. So, fun, fun, fun. We're br- briefly going to talk about that and give you guys. I don't know if there's any really tips and tricks here. It's all very universal, but most importantly, follow your policies and procedures that the hospital uh, gives to you. Uh, but there's just like some standard things to really think about. Uh, usually there's a band that's on your patient and uh, it's, it's, I think it's universal. All hospitals have it. Uh, for some reason, when I worked in the STICU, that patient didn't have a blood band mm. and I asked him about it. No, that's fine. But mm. And I'm like, was, was she uh, typed in screen? Yeah. Okay. Well, then that's fine. doesn't matter. But usually it's like my mental thing. Like if they don't have that freaking band, I'm not giving blood. But Mm -hmm. every facility does things differently, I guess. Back in Chicago, we
1: never had like a blood band either. We just had, we just, you know, would scan it normally, but they wouldn't necessarily have a a blood band, Mm. you know. They would have a a wristband that says like blood on it, but it wouldn't be like, it's a general band, like a
0: fall band. So what I'm thinking now is every single healthcare system is different. For example, Meditech doesn't require to scan the blood bank ID number. Uh, there's other f- facilities. When I worked in LaGrange, when I worked in all over the place, like in LA, you have to scan the blood bank ID before you give mm-hmm. the blood product. So that's like that safety mechanism that uh, they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before you get that blood band, you need to be typed and screened. So the type in screen allows you to get the blood bank ID and that's just what we just talked about this whole podcast about the ant- antigens, RX, RH factor. Uh, you have to realize what the patient has before you give it to them. So you're uh, preventing the transfusion reaction from happening. Mm. Uh, some patients that have like specific antigens or RH factors, blood banks going to call you and like, hey, this is going to take longer to get blood. So I don't know what the scale is of what's like the hardest blood to obtain or not. But the more antigens and Rh factors that the patient has, the harder it's going to get blood, depending on your area and all that. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah,
1: uh, when you're about to give blood,
0: you always want
1: to have it with saline. You don't want to give it with like LR or any kind of other other uh, solutions, just because saline is the is the most similar to uh to like you could say, um, you know how we do the fluids like hypertonic, isotonic, all that. It's 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 the same, closest to blood as we could get. So we don't want to give like a like a really hyper super hypertonic solution or a really hypotonic solution you know uh with blood we just want to give the, the the saline so when you hang blood you always have like a the tubing is always uh like has two uh places where you stick into the bag one's going to be for the for the blood and one's going to be for the saline and you, you prime it with the saline and then you add the blood to the, to the chamber and you basically let it run so usually hospital standards uh, like Matt said, require a tuner's verification, and you gotta pro- you gotta scan it, scan it, and then you know make sh- actually make sure that it is the correct blood. Like, so there could be times where you might scan it and might scan fine, but it might be like the wrong patient, wrong number on there. You just want to make sure everything matches up because this could literally literally kill somebody. And once you uh, get that set up, you want to take a baseline vitals of the patient so you know where they stand. That way, if someone becomes hypotensive, you're gonna know that hey, this patient was was 110, now he's 80. Someone might, might be going on. Or if they're like 90 off the rip, maybe they just stay low. Maybe a, a change from a uh, systolic of 95 to an 88 might not be a sign of a, of, of a reaction. And then you wanna stay bedside for about 15 minutes just to monitor and make sure that the patient is doing okay. You also shouldn't start the blood blood uh, to run very fast, started at like you know, maybe 50. And then once they're, they're okay, you bump up to 100, 150. And then you do have about 30 minutes to start the blood. So it means if you pick it up from a blood bank at noon, that blood better be running by, by 1230. And that blood could run for about three hours. So you have about three hours to give that unit of blood. And then you can give another one if you, if you would like to. And usually this, the, this varies from the hospital. So you want a baseline set of vitals a 50 vitals, set of vitals 15 minutes after you start the administration. And then the in-between stuff, it's more facility-driven. Usually the facility that I've worked at usually like a half an hour and then an hour, and then you're usually good for the for the most part. And then you want to do a set of vitals after you administer the blood and also an hour after, because remember that you just gave the blood, but the blood is still circulating throughout the body for an hour and you can still have still have a reaction post transfusion which could be real scary yeah,
0: all very good points
1: and i would say that probably the major things to look for for like a reaction to to blood is going to be tachycardia hypotension they stop peeing they get fevers or like a red rash or even or even a headache those are like the most common ones that you could see and like you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast a person might have like a slight reaction maybe they might get, get a little bit red maybe they might get a little bit of itchy and some physicians are usually okay with that because they need to get the blood. So they would supplement it with like Benadryl. And for example, for like our heart heart failure patients, like I said, it's always a volume thing. We always want to be careful with the volume because any increase in volume is going to lead to an increased strain on the heart. And you don't want to throw them into kind of, any kind of like tachycardia or throw them into like a CHX exacerbation or anything, anything like that. So a lot of times what we do is we give the blood and then we follow it up with some Lasix. That way... They keep the RBCs, but they're going to pee out uh, some more some more fluid. So it's kind of like you're making them wet and then you're drying them out right away. Just because you want, they need that blood, but you can't give them that volume. So we kind of just do like that kind of approach to yeah. it. Or even albumin we would give sometimes too with the blood.
0: A couple of tips that I've, I'm picking up as I'm listening to this when you're administering blood is always make sure IV's panned. So give it a good 10cc saline flush. Ask the patient if the if you know they're experiencing any pain. Uh, usually a lot of people say AC and above is ideal in the ICU central lines. But of course, there's plenty of times I gave, you know, uh, what's it called? Blood through like a 22 gauge. Mm. So make sure that's good. Um, and then also sometimes what I liked, I liked to do before is when I was running blood through a pump is I put 999 and run it really quick till it almost hits the uh, the tip, stop, and then press begin on my MAR uh, to start that. Mm. And then also... Um, I remember the first time I pressured, uh, pressure bag blood, which was in Pasadena. Uh, I did it. I, this is my first time pressure bagging. I didn't understand how things work. I connected it to a really shitty, uh, IV access and I pressure bagged it, left the room. And then it turns out like the blood stopped pouring mm. because it needs more pressure. The volume depleted in the bag. So literally I had to be in the room almost the whole entire time pressure bagging this blood in. Mm. Usually that's not the case. If you have a good IV access, uh, but most uh, most facilities they want you, they want it on a pump, and you're not going to be experiencing that issue. Right. Yeah. And if you do find
1: yourself in a situation where your patient does have a adverse reaction to, to the blood, you want to right away stop the blood, flush the IV. Don't pull out the IV. Leave it there because you might need to administrate some more medications. And you know, let your supervisor know, let the charge nurse know, let the physician know, and let blood bank know because they got they got to figure out why the reaction happened. Was it because the blood was you know not the correct blood, even though it was labeled as A, but maybe it was B inside, they got to figure out what happened there. And you can't just, even though the patient might need blood, you can't keep, keep giving the blood because you're having a patient's immune system fight this this blood, which is going to lead to hemolysis and a complete destruction of, of RBCs, which is going to further decrease RBCs. So you want to stop it right away, flush it uh, with, some, with some saline, and then notify everybody as soon as possible. Hopefully they don't have a, a really big exacerbated reaction where they're Super hypertensive, tachycardic, you know, they become simulant, they're not responsive. You can get that bad. We want to avoid it. So just, you know, get there on time and just flush it and get rid of that blood off the rip.
0: That's why it's ideal to be with your patient the first 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that you get busy, man. You got to go between the room Mm -hmm. and check on something and come back. Hopefully you have a great nurse that could watch your patients while you do all that.
1: Yeah, you got to be careful because as nurses, I feel like sometimes we take it for granted. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, even though it's us who stay in a room for 15 minutes, I don't always stay in a room for 15 minutes because I got other stuff to do. I do pop on them like a lot, a lot more often, but I was still, it's like if I have to help my other patient out in the next room, well, guess what? I'm going to have to leave for the five minutes and I try to come back each
0: time, but you know, it doesn't always work out. And ideally don't take granted the the power of subjective information, like ask your patient how they're feeling during this time, You know, before you might seeing a drop in vitals and hives pop up or itchiness and all that, maybe the patient is going to be experiencing different Mm. things or shortness of breath all of a sudden, they're just not feeling Mm. themselves. They know how they're gonna feel and uh, that maybe could be your first indicator you never know. Right, and if they are feeling short, short of
1: breath, that's usually associated to like a volume issue, not always a reaction. It could be both. You know, don't call me on this one. You should still stop it just in case. But it's usually a volume issue. So if they're shorter breath, usually just giving them some Lasix is, is, is gonna help. I know working at uh, back in Chicago, like I said, every time we gave blood, we always give Lasix. So every time we got ordered blood, we always had a PR in order of 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 LASIKs. Now, I'll be honest with you, there was a time where I where I gave blood and this patient was really unstable with really bad, really bad heart failure to go in surgery like the next morning, but they needed blood so we kind of gave him blood and there was lasix order prn you know and then she became short of breath so what we did was we literally stopped the blood we gave him 20 uh lasix iv helped a little bit um, so then we restarted her blood and then she became short of breath again and then we gave her like 40 of lasix so she literally got 60 of lasix in like within like an hour which is which is a pretty good amount, and that actually helped her. We we got her hemoglobin up. We got her ready for surgery, but we, we had to like critically think like, hey, patient needs this, needs his blood before surgery. They got they gotta get this blood, but they're so fluid volume, and you're overloaded, their heart is just so bad that any kind of fluid change impact them in that way, where they got shorter breath. And this literally was like literally like shorter breath. Like she. Like with our patient, you know, that patient that we had that one day that had to get up to take a shit, had, had to go to the commode, <laughs> and he got up himself. So we're like, fuck, we got to get him up. Yeah. This this day w- w- was like that. She was late. She was at like 30 degrees, and she literally went, as soon as we started the blood, maybe for like 15 minutes, maybe she got like 100 mLs of blood in that 15 minutes, if, if that even. She literally tried position, have like breathing, discipline, like, short of breath. And that was just because that, that little bit of fluid, that's her. That much. And it was so fucking scary because we were literally in the room. Just trying to figure out what the hell to do. Like we need to do this because you know she's gonna die if you don't give her blood. And it was, just, it, was a trip. it was a trip. It's
0: wild what a poor ejection fraction does to Dude. you. Dude. It was like it was like
1: 10%, man. If that even
0: all right. What a fascinating episode. Hopefully, hopefully this was educational for a lot of people. And some people might have to re-list and take some notes, maybe because this is jam-packed. And if you want a visual learning piece to this podcast episode that could help you check out the show notes on couplenurses.com You could go, you know, page by page or section by section and understand what we're talking about. Maybe take notes, print out the show notes. I don't know, take it to class. Tell people about the Couple Nurses podcast. I don't
1: know. I so. Or you could just go ahead and ask us. You know, you go straight to the source. You know, you could uh, DM Couple Nurses on, on Instagram or send us a message on Facebook. And we're more than happy to answer all your questions. I know people have been asking us, us uh, a lot of questions in, in the past and we've pretty much answered most of them unless they're like super, super complex and like, based on how your school interprets things. Those obviously we can't really answer, but for the most general nursing questions, we much got all the answers or we'll help you figure it out.
0: Yeah, buddy. Guys, thank you for tuning in. See you on the next one. Have a great day. Peace.